I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, March 4th, 2014. Coming up, we talk about how dolphins are responding to changes in the ocean. And we discuss with author Julene Baer the importance of the depletion of the Ogallala Aquifer. Last week, a CU Boulder study in Science magazine made headlines around the world. Top-notch detective work by scientists showed how, 25,000 years ago, a major ice age trapped Asian explorers on a land bridge between Asia and Alaska for 10,000 years. Back then, the Beringia land bridge was 30 miles long and 600 miles wide. Glaciers buried North America, but Beringia was just warm enough so the explorers thrived. For a taste of life on Beringia, here's how on earth Shelley Schlender asking the study's lead author, CU scientist John Hoffecker, this question. What did the Beringians eat? I brought some things from, from my refrigerator. So how about this jam? Could they have had berries there? Yes, you would have berries there. Well, this jam is the first ingredient is actually sugar. The berries would have been there. But probably not the added sugars. Probably not. Ah, here's something that is the staff of life. Here's some bread products. In this case, it's English muffins. The USDA says that this should be a part of every human's diet, but did the Beringians have them? No, I, would, I wouldn't expect much grain harvesting here. For thousands of years, they didn't have wheat or rice or corn. Not, a, not in the subarctic shrub tundra. Okay, so 27,000 years ago in the Bering Straits, not that. Oh, let's see what else I have here. Cheese. Ingredients would have been there, but probably not accessible. Because nobody likes to milk a wild bison. Wouldn't advise anyone to do that. I found this at the store, chopped wild elk. Elk is a good candidate. We know elk was around there. So you've got the water birds to go after. You've got some fish to go after. John Hoffinger, you're not describing a vegan diet for people 27,000 years ago. No, I am not. And these people were healthy? They continued to reproduce, and after the last glacial maximum, they underwent a major expansion, population expansion. So, Doing fine. They seem to have been doing fine, yes. And how many thousands of years do you think people might have eaten this way? I mean, this is called an unusual diet today. How many thousands of years were people eating this way? The diet that was heavy in protein and fat was pretty typical all across the northern hemisphere. I'm going to show you one more food. It's a soup bone for beef. What do I see in the center? You see marrow which undoubtedly was very important. It's just white creamy stuff. It looks a little bit like cream cheese. It's something that people were clearly using heavily. What is it mainly? Fat? Uh, yeah, largely, yes. It's largely fat. Right. And it was something that people went after as much as they could. Yes. American Heart Association says we shouldn't do that. <laughs> it clearly was an important part of the diet. The Beringians, for thousands of years, they thrived on bone marrow, fish, bison. They thrived on foods like that. Yes, probably not unlike the diet of most northern peoples. Lots of mammals, either sea mammals or land mammals, depending on where you are. So that's been the norm until recently. 
That's CU scientist John Hoffecker talking with Shelley Schlender about life on Beringia. For the extended version of the interview, check out howonearthradio.org. Dr. Denise Hertzing, the founder of the Wild Dolphin Project, has been building relationships with Atlantic spotted dolphins for almost 30 years. Her quest is to learn whether dolphins have language and to learn that language, and it's notable for its incredible longevity. But her relationship with the dolphins is remarkably respectful, too. We last spoke with Dr. Hertzing in the spring of 2012 about her book, Dolphin Diaries, my 25 years with the spotted dolphins in the Bahamas. We're very glad that she's with us again to help us learn how large marine mammals may be responding in unusual ways to changes in the oceans. Welcome to How on Earth, Denise. Hi, good morning. Good morning. It's so glad to hear you uh, from you again. And uh, since we last spoke, before we get into the issue of, uh, of you know, some unusual changes that you've been observing that other people have been observing with large sea mammals, I'd like to just take a little while to kind of catch up on how your research is going. Uh, what's, what's new in the Caribbean uh, with, <laughs> with, with your family? Well, you know, a lot of what we do is uh, maintenance observation. So, you know, we continue tracking our uh, long-term individuals in the community. So we have had a couple record years of calving, actually, which is exciting. Um, we've got some new technology out there trying to uh, look at their natural patterns of communication as well as our uh, two-way initiative, trying to see if we can create some sort of interface for the dolphins. But uh, it's all been a little challenging this summer because of some of these big changes. Well, I'd like to get to them, but because some of our listeners aren't familiar with your research, uh, could you tell us, uh, could you fill us in again a little bit about how you're trying to learn the language of dolphins? Well, we work in one of the few areas in the world where you can actually observe uh, dolphins underwater. So for the last uh, 29 years now, we've been going out there for four to five months every year uh, with a resident group of dolphins, and we get in the water with our video cameras and sound recording equipment. And uh, we're pretty hands-off, we're non-invasive, so we just do photographs, um, video, sound recordings, and we're basically trying to look at what sounds they make with certain behaviors and between certain individuals, how sounds develop, and then try to use some cutting-edge technology um, from the computer sciences to look at patterns within those sounds that perhaps we haven't been able to look at for the last 30 years. Right, and and you're research with them, your work with them, is, uh, is, is kind of a relationship, right? Uh, you you uh, approach them and allow them the opportunity to work with you, and that's a very non-invasive way uh, I think our listeners would really respond to. Yes, well, you know, because we work in the water, and there's no way of hiding from a dolphin when you're in the water, we really had to um, develop a trust relationship and a mutual relationship. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend it for anybody in the world to jump in the water with dolphins, but this has allowed our research to be relatively non-invasive and for them to sort of ignore us some of the time and do their own behavior, which is really, you know, what we wanted to see. In your book, uh, you noted that there had been a very, very serious hurricane and that uh, some of the animals that you had been with a very, very long time 
had perhaps drowned or, or died in the storm. Tell, tell us about, a bit about that. Well, in, in 2004, we had uh, two September hurricanes. The first one was extra unusual because it actually went stationary right over our study site um, for almost a couple days. So that was probably the severe impact uh, relative to what happened with the dolphins. Because, you know, they, they certainly have hurricanes moved by or nearby over the decades. But because this one just hovered and stayed, it would really give them a lot less time to sort of breathe and be able to deal with what they need to deal with during a storm. Um, so we lost about 30% of both our spotted dolphins and our bottlenose dolphins. Now, we're still looking for them, and we still hope they went somewhere, but um, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that they probably just didn't make it. And the rest of the dolphins stayed around. Um, they didn't leave. They just had to regroup because they had lost, for example, one to two individuals within their family. Mm-hmm. Now that we talk about climate change and changes in the ocean, there's certainly a, a worry that there are going to be a lot more severe hurricanes, that they're going to happen a lot more. What are you observing, uh, you know, what kinds of changes are you observing in the oceans with your dolphins, Denise? Well, you know, of course we had Hurricane Sandy uh, last year, which kind of brushed the northern Bahamas. It didn't necessarily hit our study area directly. Um, but, you know, over the years, and, you know, it's a little bit anecdotal because science is hard to prove because it takes a lot of data over the years. But, you know, we've noticed a decrease in some of the fish and squid that the dolphins eat. Now, just this year, uh, we had a major shift with 50% of our uh, resident community of dolphins. They literally moved 100 miles away onto another area that apparently had perhaps more fish resources. So that is uh, unprecedented for our study of almost 30 years. Now, the good news is they're fat and happy and having calves where they went, um, but I suspect pretty, pretty much that it was because their fish and squid crashed off the deep water edge where they feed. Um, and again, it's, it's hard to know if it's climate change. Um, you know, another possibility is that the Gulf oil spill of 2010 really did make its way up the East Coast in the deep water and perhaps compromised the food chain, which we know it did in the Gulf of Mexico. The dolphins there are still affected, as well as the turtles and other species, um, by the impact of those toxins and the uh, dispersant. So there's a lot of possibilities, but uh, between rising sea level and the food chain, I think this is where we need to be, of course, very concerned. And we're into it now. Now it's just surviving it. It's not stopping it necessarily. Mm -hmm. There have been some other changes noted, right? Whales that, uh, right whales in the Bay of Fundy, uh, there were a lot fewer of them, right? Tell us about that. Um, well, as far as I know, not too many showed up, and this is the typical place where they go to feed and to mate. You know, and when you think about it, the first thing an animal has to do is eat, right? If you're going to survive, you have to eat, so you have to go where the food goes. Now, right whales are migratory. They migrate north and south like gray whales and humpback whales, for example, because they eat small plankton that blooms in the summer, whereas, for example, our resident dolphins seem to depend on resident food sources. That's why they're resident. Um, but, you know, we're seeing some of these major changes in the Atlantic. And, again, you know, the data is not all out, and there's many different groups that are seeing some of these small changes. But I think it's a, it's a severe concern. I mean, if the food chain crashes, you know, we're involved too, not just dolphins and whales. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing here is that these sorts of war the warming of the oceans may be affecting, starting to affect the bottom of the food chain primarily, and then those changes are starting to well up into the the uh, 
the species at the top? Well, sure. Dolphins are totally top predators. They eat fish, and fish depend on plankton. Now, large whales are plankton eaters, so they are they're affected on a, a lower level of the food chain. Uh, you know, and remember, we've also got ocean, ocean acidification, which affects the shellfish, and that's going to affect everything. So, you know, it's a big cycle. Everything's connected, and, you know, I think we're going to be in for some major surprises. Now, hopefully, many animals can adapt. Uh, for example, one of the things that's, that's happening with uh, many species, dolphins, sharks, turtles, is we're seeing an increase in hybridization between species, uh, probably because they're being forced together um, from changing uh, environments or, they're, or because of the losses of, you know, sharks have decreased, dolphins have decreased. So whether they can survive as a species or they have to hybridize to reproduce, you know, this could be another major effect. Um, for example, there's a place, I believe, in Bangladesh where the water is already rising significantly because it's so low-lying, and we've already got two species of dolphins that are being forced together and forced to interact, maybe not necessarily breed, but interact. So, you know, it's a dynamic process for these guys that have lived in um, areas for, you know, millions of years, technically. Looking forward at your research, Denise, how do you... Do you, do you plan to make changes in your research program to try to study the ecology as well as learn about the, uh, the language of the dolphins, or are you going to be relying on your fellow researchers for help there? Well, you know, what we do already is fairly multifaceted. I mean, and clearly uh, tracking where they are and the health of, you know, what's going on with them is, is primary to everything we do because, you know, we have to see them first. You know, the, I mean, the research is a little secondary in that sense of the communication because, you know, we want to know who's around, if they've survived, and if they're reproducing. Um, you know, it's a big program. I'm not sure we have the resources to do a full-fledged ecological study, but we're certainly reporting it. And, we, you know, the beauty of our work is we have almost a 30-year baseline of what's normal uh, in our area. So, so that's why I say, you know, our changes are fairly unprecedented. So something's going on. Um, we're trying to eliminate human factors, for example, you know, Navy sound, presence of orcas, you know, things that, you know, might have been situational and caused dolphins to leave. But so far nothing else has come up besides the potential food implications. Well, well thank you so much, Denise. It's always great to hear from you. Dr. Denise Hertzing is the executive director of the Wild Dolphin Project, which she founded in 1985. Every year since, she and her team have been learning about language with the Atlantic Spotted Dolphins of the Caribbean. Thank you. We often hear about how the Colorado River is running dry. The seven western states that rely on it are struggling to make its shrinking reservoirs meet the demands of growing populations. You've probably seen the stark images of the white bathtub rings at Lake Powell and Lake Mead that exposed the waterline rings of many years ago. Well, there's another precarious but far less visible water crisis that's been looming. It's the Ogallala Aquifer, an underground basin that spans eight states on the Great Plain, including Colorado. Roughly a third of the groundwater that's used for irrigating crops in the whole U.S., in fact, comes from the Ogallala. The story of its depletion is a very personal one for author Jolene Baer. She lives in Longmont now, but she grew up on a family farm in Kansas, a farm that eventually pumped loads of water from the Ogallala, like most farms around it. 
Jolene has written about her journey in a new book called The Ogallala Road, A Memoir of Love and Reckoning. She joins us in the studio. So welcome to the show. It's great to be here. First, it's a huge basin. Give us a sense. Could you, could you take us there underground? How, how big is it? Okay, it runs all the way from southern South Dakota to northern Texas. Uh, it's 174,000 square miles. It's an aquifer, an underground reserve of water. And your personal connection, I mentioned in the intro that you grew up on a farm, but what, what really drew you enough to write a book about it? It's not about it. I know it's a lot well, of yes, about you, too. <laughs> I, I grew up in a way of life. Uh, we were dryland farmers, meaning we knew how to nurture the water in our soil. Um, and meaning you couldn't pump There water. was no way to irrigate. We, couldn't, we didn't have the pumps necessary to bring water to the surface at that rate and volume. So um, we, all we had for water was a windmill on the farm when I was growing up. Um, I went away, and when I came back in my, I was in my mid-30s, and this was in the 1980s, um, our farm had been turned into an irrigation farm, like many of the farms in the region. To make more money because more water right. was more it corn? Right. It was or? much more profitable to um, irrigate because you get many more bushels to the acre. For instance, if you're growing dryland corn, which very few people did back then, you might get 50 bushels to the acre, but if you irrigate it, you'll get 200 bushels to the so acre. So money speaks big time. Yeah, <laughs> right. exactly. So is that, well, Well, how, how serious is the problem of the depletion right now? Well, it's very serious. It varies from state to state. In Nebraska, they still have quite a bit of water, and, and in fact, the water table goes up in parts of Nebraska. Other parts of Nebraska are severely stressed. Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico, eastern Colorado, all those places are severely stressed. In um, 50 years, we're told by the Kansas State University in a recent study, 70% of the water under Kansas will be gone if we, under western Kansas, the Ogallala Aquifer, if we continue at, the, at these rates. 70%? 70. By, by when? Like we're talking 2060. 2060. Mm-hmm. So if you want to pass on your farm... <laughs> right. If, if you want your children to be able to be irrigation farmers like you are, then good luck. It's not going to happen. Wow. So I wanted you to read just a short passage in okay. the book that seems sure. to sort of suggest just how, how big of a problem and how personal a connection this okay. is for you. The Ogallala Aquifer is a mastodon in the room, being driven to extinction on the plains east of Denver. It isn't talked about much in public because farmers have senior rights to the water. But a question begs to be asked, and it will be very soon. Why are a few thousand Plains farmers allowed to pump 19 million acre-feet out of the aquifer each year? That is more than half again as much as the annual flow of the Colorado River, which brings water to 30 million people. First of all, just the scale of that is huge. Right, and keep in yeah. mind that this is a non-renewable source, a virtually non-renewable source of water. And whereas, talk about that a bit, because aquifers do t yes. you know, replenish themselves, but something about this one, or is well, it just that it's so slow? It's, it's a dry area, and it gets one-half inch of recharge a year on average, which is very small, a very small amount. And irrigation farmers are allowed to pump out, uh, pump out up to 40 times that amount of water. Boy, and it sounds like it, the irrigation farming is the main 
I mean, call it culprit. Obviously, we all eat the corn mm-hmm. and the wheat, and, you know, right. so it's not a they against mm-hmm. everyone else. But is that the main, the main draw? Well, yes. I mean, uh, irrigation is 90%, uses 90% of the water um, out of the aquifer. And you mentioned in the book that it's sort of the shift to, when was it, a few years ago, when the administration said, let's grow a lot more corn for ethanol, and in fact, take a lot of the farmland that was not in production, put it back into production. So first all, that that was a carbon sink, and that was sort of restoring grasslands. So is that a, a huge additional problem or is it is it depleting right. it a, a lot much of damage rate? a lot of a lot of damage is being done other than just using up the water we're also plowing up grass we're plowing up grass that was uh, we're plowing up farmland um, that was once put back into grass in order to grow ethanol now um, also we tend to forget that the high plains were actually a natural ecosystem once. Uh, there was water flowing to the surface much more regularly than, and, and in many more places than it is now. The water tables being drawn down so that the spring-fed creeks and rivers cannot run anymore. And it's important to keep in mind, I think, how long that water has been there and how many eons of life it supported. Um, the aquifer is five million years old. Hmm. Um, it supported human life since the last ice age. And the only reason it was able to do that is because people could camp and hunt and, and get a drink. They had to be able to get a drink. Boy, so um, if you could wave your magic wand, what, what would you do and what maybe on the edges anyway is being done to actually make it a little more well, sustainable? Well, if, <laughs> if I could wave my magic wand, I would change government policy so that we're under, not underwriting and subsidizing corn production, regardless of whether it's grown on irrigated land or on dry land. Uh, I would also change the ethanol policy uh, because it's putting huge stresses on the aquifer. You mean lower subsidies? Right. With ethanol, there's a renewable fuel standard, meaning each year more and more gasoline needs to be mixed with ethanol. We need to back off of that or reverse it. Well, lots more on that topic to cover. So thank you so much for coming on the show. That was Jolene Baer, author of the new book, The Ogallala Road, A Memoir of Love and Reckoning. Thanks so much for having me. And you can hear her speak about the book this Thursday at the Boulder Bookstore at 7.30. She'll also speak in Denver at Tattered Cover on Colfax Avenue next Monday, March 10th at 7.30. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. I've been your executive producer this quarter. This show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Handel and from Mike Marshall and Daryl Anger. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Susan Moran.